Hello and welcome to another exciting and, you guessed it, jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. I'm your host, Danny Lobel, and today's episode is with Mayim Bialik of the Big Bang Theory and Blossom and the incredible website Grok Nation, which I encourage you to check out. We talk about that a little bit in the interview as well. Before I get into it, i got to tell you that this interview was recorded in two parts, and it's the only time this ever happened, but I was on my way to meet Mayim. Uh, I was running on time. I was anxious because I don't like to be late for things. I've had a problem with being late in my life, and it's something I really struggle with, and I, I've been fighting against it as I got older, trying to get a career going and not wanting that to hold me back. And I get there about 10 minutes, I'd say, before I was supposed to be there, uh, where Waze, the, um, Waze is the navigation, I'm sure most of you know that, app that I use. Uh, but Waze is a pretty good navigation app, and it took me to the address where I was supposed to meet her. And I got there, and I didn't see the building. And I start circling around. I'm like, well, maybe Waze is a little bit off, and I'm driving, and I'm going around. I'm going around the block two, three times. My wife is in the car with me. She's looking. We don't see it. And I'm like, I don't want to call because then I'm going to look like an idiot. But I finally, I do call her publicist. I'm like, I can't find the building. She's like, well, it's right there, and I, I, I'm like, I still don't see it. I'll, I'll look again, and I look again. I can't find it. I call her again. Now I feel really stupid, and now it's already like five minutes past when I'm supposed to be there. Anyway, it, it turned out it was just basically the address was covered in scaffolding because they were working on the building, and I was too anxious to, to make a rational decision that that was what was going on or, uh, or even notice, hey, there, I don't see an address because it's scaffolding. I was just really worried about being late and anxious, and it and it screwed me up, and I wound up getting there 10 minutes late, and I got up there, and I was I was all worked up, and I'm like, I'm so sorry, let's get to this, and I forgot to hit record, and about halfway through the interview, I realized it wasn't recording, and I didn't know if it was that I hit record, and that it had stopped, but then I was like, I don't think I remember hitting record, which has never, ever happened before, and mine was like, well, let's just continue with the interview, and when you get back, you could check if you have the first half. And if not, we'll work something out, which is very, very kind of her. And of course, I got back and all we had was the philosophy at the end. And I I told her and she was so nice to, to let me do the other part again. And we met the second time at the Big Bang Theory and we recorded in her dressing room. And here's a little audio of me waiting in the dressing room before the interview while they're doing the table read. It was pretty interesting. They're just making laughter. They're literally producing laughter. It's like if you go to a bakery early in the morning and can smell the bread being made. and It's like, oh, this is behind the scenes on how you get bread or muffins or something. This is like you can hear like the, the machines making laughter. And that laughter will be delivered to you in the bakery showcase, which is television. I don't know why this is a big bakery analogy, but it's cool. It's like it's the behind the scenes of laughter. All right. So now that you have that part of the story, the other part that I bring up in the interview is that I had gotten robbed at my barbershop two days earlier. And that is a whole story that'll take a long time, and I will tell it on the podcast uh, at some point, but all you need to know was that I was a wreck the second time as well. And I'm usually pretty cool as a cucumber when I do these, I think. I've never, I can't think of one other interview. I mean, there must have been one. But I can't think of one where I was like st stressed out going into it, even the first time. There's always only a first time. Uh, but I don't know. It's just how, how it shook out. I, and, and Mayim, to her unbelievable credit, calmed me down right away both times and we had an incredible talk and I'm very grateful to her for for being so supportive to me and to my wife whose articles she publishes on Grok Nation so make sure you check that out I'm very very proud of my wife Kylie Ora Lobel check out her articles on Grok Nation and beyond all right we have two sponsors of course first we are brought to you by Stand Up Records here's a word from them you know here at Stand Up Records when we say we have the best names in comedy 
We're not messing around. In fact, we were there first, with comedians who went on to become household names. Names like Hannibal Burris, Maria Bamford, the Sklar Brothers, Doug Stanhope, Mark Marin, and Lewis Black. So why not head on over to StandUpRecords.com or Amazon.com or the iTunes Music Store and pick up a classic CD, DVD, or download of the best comedians working today. And check out some of our other artists, because you never know who the next big thing will be. That's StandUpRecords.com. Stand Up Records, the brand you know, the brand you love. And also, we are brought to you by another sponsor. Here's something you didn't know about me because I've never talked about it on the show, but for at least uh, over half a year now, I've also been podcasting as part of a media podcast group at a rehab facility in Malibu, California called Centered Health, which is an unbelievable facility that overlooks the Pacific Ocean. It's gorgeous. The kids have like their own beautiful big beds in their rooms and just unbelievable facilities with pool and a game room. And, and, and in addition to that, they have these awesome outside of the box groups like the one I do, the podcast group. They have a surf group. They have a meditation group. They have a breathing group. They have an improv comedy group. They have a DBT group, an emotional intelligence group, an anger reduction therapy, and a psychodynamic group. They also have a full-time psychologist who's there all the time in the house, and they have psychiatrists, all kinds of professionals to give these kids the help that they desperately need. All the work that they're doing is catered to the individual. They only take six kids at a time, so every kid gets so much attention. And there are so many kids out there that need this kind of help, and, and it's not available to them or they're just not getting it. And this place is so, so important because of that, and it makes me feel incredible to be a part of it. I'm so proud to be representing them and telling you about this. There are so many teens across the country that are facing all kinds of struggles. Struggles with mental health, struggles with addiction, struggles with substance abuse, and behavioral health disorders. Like I said, it's an unbelievable facility that has a pool, an executive chef, a library, a tennis court. So much for these kids. So much to help them in the rehab process and to get their minds off of drugs or whatever addictions or abuses that they are facing, and to help them to, to recover and rehabilitate. Their individual sessions are done by psychologists who have at least 20 years of experience. They take kids who are ages 12 to 17, and they accept nearly all insurances. The therapists are doctoral-level practitioners who really put their heart and soul into the work that they're doing. If you know any kids who are suffering with any of these things, please don't hesitate to tell them about Centered Health. Their website is centeredhealth.com. Their phone number is 800-200-1455. That's 1-800-200-1455, centeredhealth.com. Do your part to help these kids get the help that they need. You could change somebody's life forever. At the end of the interview, make sure you stay tuned for a little epilogue. I want to tell you what happened at the end of this interview, uh, the follow-up, the post to the post-traumatic stress of getting robbed. So I want, to, I want to tell you about that, and I will at the end. But now, without further ado... Except for the intro song, I give you my talk with the incredibly kind and talented Mayim Bialik. Enjoy! Hello, and welcome to Modern Day Philosophers! Modern Day Philosophers! Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel! Modern Day Philosophers! I'm <laughs> sitting in, uh, is this a dressing room? This is my dressing room. Yes. At the Big Bang Theory with Mind Bialik, and this is going to be episode 82. So in three years, 82 episodes. <laughs> I've never once done this before <laughs> where I didn't hit record for the first half of the interview. So you have that distinct honor and privilege. Well, I, I guess I, I am honored, indeed. <laughs> It's great to be here with you. Nice You're to see you again. Exceedingly kind to let me do this again. No problem. And uh, last time I interviewed you, I was shook up because we couldn't find the place and we were circling right. all around and then we were late. It was, uh, it threw me off. And when we got up there, I was, I was so flustered by the whole thing. And, and like every, se when you're late, every second feels like 10 minutes. You yeah. Know? Yeah, for sure. So I, I was just like, when I finally got up there, I was like, 
so relieved. I'm just like, all right, let's do this. I didn't even hit record. <laughs> well, here we are. Is it recording now? It's recording now. Right on. <laughs> it's good that you checked. <laughs> <laughs> this time, it's weird. I, I was like, you know, next time I go in there, I'm going to be so ready. I'm going to be... <laughs> This time I got robbed two days ago in my barber shop. Oh, no. And, and I've been like a nervous wreck that didn't want to leave the house. Oh. Well, I'm glad I'm, you came I'm out. I once <laughs> again shook up. I just, I just figured I'll put it all out there. Because I was telling my wife, I'm like, I can't believe it. Once again. <laughs> Not in the stars to have a smooth day. But, well, it seems to be going well so far. So Yeah. All right. Great. I'm a fan of your writing. I'm a fan of the Thank videos you. that you put out. That's really where I come to you. In this, I mean, I'm a fan of your work, but really I'm a big fan of your other work. Thank you. That's very nice. Yeah, people do know me from television. Obviously, I'm on The Big Bang Theory now, but I was on a show called Blossom when I was younger. I was 14 to 19, so it was many years ago. What is it like to grow up in television? Well, I'm actually considered kind of a late bloomer. I started acting when I was 11, which sounds very young, and indeed it was. Yeah. But most child actors you meet start when they're two and three. But I had a different kind of trajectory. I was in school plays and I thought that because I liked it, that meant I should try it professionally. But I didn't mm -hmm. really know kind of what was in store. So I started doing that when I was 11. And I was cast in a movie called Beaches when I was 12, where I played the young Bette Midler. And after that, I ended up doing Blossom for five years. Um, so yeah, I spent my formative years on camera. But I had a lot of time that I also still had friends and a life and school and, you know, all those kind of normal things. Uh, my parents made a very concerted effort to kind of keep my life as normal as possible. And also I was on TV in the 90s before there was Internet and before there was kind of the publicity machine that there is now. Mm -hmm. So growing up didn't feel so much like being in the public eye, like no one was taking pictures and posting them on Instagram or Twitter or whatever. So um, I was very recognizable from being on a popular, you know, show, but it wasn't kind of like number one show in America and everybody, you know, takes pictures of people where they go and stuff like right. that. Right. Yeah. There was a so bigger different. divide back then. Yeah, absolutely. How did it affect you? Like, um, you know, you, you're growing up where your job is basically to make other people happy. So that, you know, mm -hmm. affects you. And I think especially, you know, I had a lot of adult responsibilities as a teenager, um, because I, I worked at a place where other people's livelihood depended on me and I was earning money that didn't really make sense to me because I didn't come from a family that had money. So that was definitely something to get used to. Do you remember the thoughts that went through your head about it at the time? I didn't think much about it. I mean, I'm grateful that it was set aside till I was 18 because there are actually like rules about that and stuff. Um, but I was never, I, I'm still not, not like a spendthrifty person. I never mm -hmm. bought anything super expensive. Like I, 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 I got a car, you know, when I was 16, right. but like, that's the experience of many people in Los Angeles, but it's not like I had like a fleet of cars and three the, mansions and a jet, you does know, that come from your parents, your relationship to money or. Yeah. Also the kind of money that people made in the nineties in television is very, very different from the kind of money that people make 10, 20 years later in television. Um, I think back then the highest paid actor was Ted Danson on cheers. And I think he made like a hundred thousand dollars a week, which was like, Oh my gosh, that's like highway. Like no one should make that much money. And now, I mean, I don't even know if it's for better or for worse. Like that's not considered as much money, both because of inflation and just because of kind of the standards of the industry. So it wasn't like we were making the kind of money that people make now. Um, but yeah, I credit my parents with kind of helping me live a sort of um, as normal lifestyle as possible. And just everybody's got a different personality and I'm just kind of a frugal person. So Right, right. What did they do, your parents? My parents were um, documentary filmmakers in the 60s and 70s. And they also were public school teachers and civil rights activists because they grew up... Um, they grew, well, they were born during World War II. My grandparents are immigrants. So my parents were raised as first-generation Americans. And Where did your um, grandparents immigrate from? The Czech-Hungary border and Poland. Right on the border. Uh, my grandmother was from a from near Munkac, so she was ethnically Hungarian, but she spoke Czech. She spoke, you know, a lot of those dialects from that region. Um, but anyway, so my parents were raised to be civil rights activists and... Um, yeah. So yeah, so they were public school teachers and my mother worked at the synagogue that I grew up at as an early childhood educator. But my dad taught, they taught for a combined 70 years of public school wow. in their lives, yeah. What, what were their documentaries about? My parents traveled across the country a couple times and they filmed kind of America as they saw it. 
and they were anti-Vietnam documentaries. Were you with them on these trips? No, no, this is before I was born. This is well before I was born. Yeah, they waited seven years before having my brother, so they had time to travel and do all that neat stuff. So they actually won an award at the Lincoln Film Festival in 1972 for one of their films, but mainly anti-war documentaries. What was it called? Um, It was called White Grease. Is it still available? Can you get it on Netflix? I don't think it is. No, no, it was never released like that. It was a short, so. Okay, cool. Yeah. Do you watch... All your parents' documentaries now? Do you ever go back? You know, to they were filmed on 8mm and 16mm, and so we had them converted. I haven't watched them, and my boys aren't old enough to see them. I have two kids who are 8 and 11. Um, but there's some graphic war kind of imagery, so they haven't seen them yet. But it's something, you know, we were always very proud of, and my dad was always very proud of. It's cool because it gives you, like, such a different insight into who your parents are. Oh, yeah, and my mom's in a lot of the films at, you know, 20 and 21, and so to see her, it's crazy. yeah. What was she like? Like very like hippie, bohemian, huh. you know, they were artists and, um, you know, she had really long hair and just, you know, the clothes look so different. But to have that captured on film is really special. So you think they really influenced the way you related to money and the way you related to work? Yeah, I think also being Jewish, like I was raised kind of in a traditional house. And I think the, you know, the notions of wanting to be part of fixing the world and um, acknowledging that there are those not as fortunate as you, like those were all sort of ethics that I was raised with both in my home. And also I went to a, a reform synagogue with a strong emphasis on tikkun olam, which is repairing the world. So yeah. yeah, that, that sat really well with me as a kid. Have you jumped around the different sects of Judaism at this point? Or? I don't know if I've jumped around. I've moved, <laughs> I've moved through a lot of learning. I, yeah. I did a minor in Hebrew and Jewish studies at UCLA when I went to college there. Um, I studied neuroscience, but I spent a lot of time volunteering and participating in Jewish programming just because it was a social group I was comfortable with and I I liked the person that I was becoming when I was learning. And um, I definitely took on more observance in college and when I got married and as I was having my kids. And a lot of people kind of talk about being sort of Mm -hmm. post-denominational. I kind of like that notion that there are bits from all the denominations that I resonate with. I personally, I tend to want to pray in a modern Orthodox kind of egalitarian environment. Um, But I sometimes do go to Reform Synagogue with family or friends. And there are other synagogues here in L.A. that have things that appeal to me. But I'm kind of a wandering Jew. Yeah, I feel like... What you said, the little parts of all the different kinds of Jews make the perfect Jew. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're a a still evolving identity, especially in America. There have been a lot of challenges to observance. Secular life is definitely different than it was 50 years ago and 100 years ago and 1,000 years ago. And Judaism has always lent itself to adapting to the culture around it. There's a lot of finding our way. There are a lot of things, the kind of complications surrounding women's roles in Judaism that we're still exploring, but I'm really hopeful we'll still be able to have open dialogue, which is what sort of Judaism has always done. The thing that I encounter a lot is I run into a lot of Jews, obviously in comedy and in show business, that are really not proud to be Jews. (laughs) And that bothers me the most. I I was on a podcast this week, uh, a Jewish friend of mine, this girl who we did a podcast together for years, now has a show with somebody Mm -hmm. else. And um, they're like, we need a guest to defend Judaism. <laughs> so <laughs> Kylie volunteered me because she saw the Facebook post and I went on and they were, the other girl wasn't Jewish, but they were just like both viciously attacking everything Jewish. And it yeah. was like this huge attack. Cause sometimes it's subtle and you're like, are they really? Right. So, but then it was like, wow, we're this is now it's face. And it's, and sad because I feel so many Jews are missing the beauty of Judaism and, and being proud of their identity. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a lot of challenges to that in a secular society, you know, and especially depending where you live or where you work. You know, I work in a very secular environment, even though there's a lot of Jews in show business. Um, many, or I'd say most, are not observant, you know, or kind of inclined that way. Um, and a lot of it I've found is like, there's a tremendous amount of misunderstanding about, I'm sure about all religions and all ethnic people. Um, but in particular, a lot of people like really don't know anything about Jews or they don't know that, you know, Jews couldn't own land or businesses and that, you know, Mm -hmm. we, we took on a lot of our, a lot of our learning and a lot of our, um, ability to manage money because those were the only jobs that were available to us as opposed to like Jews are greedy, Jews are stingy, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of history that, that many Jews don't know about, about sort of how the Jewish people came to be what they are today. And that's too bad. The thing I find is like the biggest challenge is that 
I think a lot of Jews are raised with such a crazy notion of, of what God is in the Torah that, <laughs> that they're, of course they reject it just out of intelligence. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of potentially problematic issues with, you know, the God of the Abrahamic religions. Um, but I also feel like there are so many aspects to, to Judaism that you can be exposed to, which shed further light on that. Um, and, you know, we used to live in smaller communities where we were all educated more similarly. And now, you know, we're sort of like scattered everywhere. And um, it's hard, you know, to find sort of common ground of, of an understanding. Yeah. I mean, if, if you were taught that God is just this jealous, angry, you know... <laughs> Vengeful. vengeful yeah then <laughs> then you're like yeah this sounds ridiculous why would i right what is your understanding of um well you know i'm trained as a scientist so wait so you studied neuroscience in college uh well i have a phd in neuroscience so i did my undergraduate i have a bs in neuroscience mm -hmm. from ucla and then a phd also from ucla and my specialty was psychoneuroendocrinology but i'm trained in uh general neuropsych uh -huh. neuropsychology so and some genetics we, i mean we're trained were... in everything in every aspect of neuroscience but my rotations for for thesis and and um kind of more focused study is genetics and neuropsychology and then psychoneuroendocrinology. You were acting at the same time? No, I took 12 years off pretty much from acting. I mean, I did I did a couple episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm, like a, a thing here or there. Um, but yeah, I completed my thesis and I went back to acting formally um, and started working on The Big Bang Theory after I got my thesis done. Was it your plan ever when you when you stopped to go back to acting or were you like, I'm done with it, I'm, no, I'm moving No, my plan was to be a research professor. I had my first son in graduate school and then my second son right after. So I was teaching for about five years before I started working on The Big Bang Theory. I was teaching neuroscience in the homeschool community here in um, right in L.A., I taught junior high and high school neuroscience, chemistry, and biology. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was like a teacher. I was home with my kids, and I started running out of health insurance. And so I figured if I can audition here and there and just get my insurance back, I'll have insurance for my family again. I did not <laughs> plan to be cast in a show called The Big Bang Theory, which I had never seen. Right. And and then the, maybe the neuroscience, the fact that you were teaching neuroscience probably fed um, into that. I don't know. You know, none of the other actors on our show are scientists. Right. So, you know, we are hired to play whatever it is that the script calls for. Well, so. Yeah. What attracted you to going into neuroscience? It's a big transition um, from acting. I fell in love with biology in high school. I had a, an amazing tutor when I was working on Blossom. And she's who really got me interested in science and helped me believe that, that girls can do it too. Because before uh -huh. that, I really didn't... Um, didn't see science as something for, for girls. Really? Yeah. I mean, I was raised in a culture of sciences for boys, maths for boys. I never you know. thought of it like that. Yeah. I'm older than you, so that could okay. be. Um, but yeah, so I got interested in science, and originally I was interested in genetics. And when I got to UCLA, I ended up taking a class in psychobiology, and I liked the biology part more, and what it was was neuroscience. So that's what I studied. So a lot of people, you know, wonder how I can be a scientist and be a person of faith. You know, mm -hmm. for me, every amazing thing that I learned about science was further confirmation of the amazingness of the universe, which I believe is governed by a power greater than myself. I didn't create any of the things that that um, I find astounding that way. And everything that I learn about religious practice is more information to me about the historical nature of religion and the the historical context that that religion evolved out of. And there's a very particular purpose for religion, but religion's not God. Mm -hmm. Pe people trying to enforce religion and force religion on other people is not God. That's people. <laughs> right. Um, as a scientist, you know, the... The God that I believe in is the God of science and the universe and physics and um, all of the things that happen and the way they happen and our perception of them. So the fact that some people's notion of the sun coming up is like, oh, the sun came up because the earth's turning, that's fine. But the fact that, that people have faith that the sun will come up tomorrow to me is the same exact faith that I have. I just believe that there's a divine power to everything that happens and a tremendous sense of appreciation and wanting to honor that. So to me, that's really the same faith. You know, if I met someone who was like, I don't think the sun's going to come up tomorrow. Oh, then that's, that's, you know, categorically different right. than, than my belief system. But that's almost like a Spinozian take on God, but the, but there's still a, you made it sound so fancy. Oh yeah. Just because people <laughs> who listen to this show, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they know Spinozian. <laughs> <laughs> they know we've talked about it at least, right. but 
But the, there is a big distinction, I think, in that in when it comes to communicating with God, mm-hmm. right? That's right. where where are are you on that on board with that? Yeah, I'm I'm on board with communicating <laughs> with God. You can hashtag that. Yeah, I think. Well, it's not even about communicating with God, right? It's it's um, communicating in general your sense of reverence and appreciation for the world and all of the experiences that we go through and the ways that we honor that. Yes, I'm I'm a person who believes in both prayer and meditation, you know, prayer being talking and meditation being being listening. And both of those are, you know, uh, foundations of, of Judaism that a lot of people don't know about. You know, a lot of people don't know that there are, um, you know, tantric elements to a lot of the prayer service as it originated. Um, that's not just, you know, popular <laughs> trendy notions of Judaism, but that's like, that's, that's a real thing. Right. But yes, I'm on board with a notion of connecting with something that's not me and that has more understanding of the universe than I do. And I right. choose to call that God. Do you feel like you've, you've had situations where God talks back to you? Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that, that I feel that God speaks to us the way God used to. I think that we don't listen the same way, mm-hmm. um, people did, um, and have for a long time, but I definitely feel protected and I feel guided And I also feel at peace with things when they don't go in my direction. And a lot of times I hear people thanking God when things go well, but the same God who you might think helps things go well also sometimes um, is in charge when things don't go well. And for me, that's, that's the greatest test of faith. I had that test two days ago when I got robbed. Yeah, exactly. It was so weird because that's exactly what was going through my head. The whole time I was like, I was thinking, well, this is also from God, right? This right. Is, this well, has all been set up so well, orchestrated, like right. Well, and and the, the 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 notion is not that God is looking to punish you and like God is right. sending out judgment to you. The notion is that God is the God of the universe, where people get sick and people die, and bad things happen and good things happen. And I don't mean like you know God, what is it, the watchmaker? You know that God like wound us up and let us go. I mean that the mysteries of the universe and the unfolding of everyone's path and journey is not only so that everyone feels good all the time. It's just mm-hmm. not. It's not the course of the universe scientifically or spiritually. So how do you make sense of that? Um, I, I don't. It just is. It just is. Like God just is. Everything just is. Um, there are things that I can do to strengthen my ability to cope, and I rely on God and my religious structure uh, for that. You know, when my father died, I was so incredibly grateful. I had an open line of conversation with God already. I had decided years ago to keep that conversation going so that if I ever needed it, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was there and available. And that's part of what we talk about with prayer and meditation. You don't just do it when things are bad. You have to keep that conversation going when things are good so that you have a, you know, a way you know you like to speak to God or meditate or anything like that. So yeah, when my dad died, I was so grateful for the rituals of Judaism, the notion that there are things that we do, there's a reason we do them, and that they can be very, very powerful, um, helped me. I know it may not help everyone, but it helped me tremendously. Were you also angry at the same time? You know, I never really felt, uh, I mean, in general, I don't really feel angry at God. It's like not a, it's like that's such a... That's a human emotion that I, I mean, God doesn't have human emotion. No, but I'm saying God, to me, I I don't think of communicating with God through that kind of human emotion because God is not human and God doesn't have ears and God doesn't, you know, it's not. Aren't we supposed to sort of ascribe human emotion to understand God? Well, I don't know that we're supposed to. That's something that we do because we have no other way to understand the Ein Sof, you know, and like Mm. this unimaginably enormous, powerful. means without end. Right, it's one of the one of the little nicknames we have um, for God. But but yeah, I don't. Um, yeah, I didn't feel angry at all. No, I, I'll, I'll throw a Hebrew term at you too because you know the term Gamzulatova. Uh huh. Yeah. Even this is for the good. So right. when I got robbed, I kept thinking, try and try and meditate on that. Try right. to focus on the whole thing about it. The guy got a lot of money off mm-hmm. me, but it was more that he. I just felt really violated. I sure. just felt really powerless. Sure. Because I'm, I just, I even if I tried to fight back, I would lose. You know. Sure. But either way, I lose. Right. So it was very hard, and I've sort of been struggling with that for the last two days. Just like right, going back and forth in my head, and like, how is this good? Like, 
really trying to figure that out. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I don't know that you're asking my opinion, but I, the, I well, I feel like, I mean, when I've been in um, critical or dire uh, or dangerous situations, um, not like that, but similar-ish, you know, I think the notion is that we are all put through tests and trials and tribulations that force us to garner strength we never had before, you know, and who knows why we're each put through the tests that we're put through. But I've found one of the most comforting things is that you've now had an experience that may be able to support someone who has a similar experience if you may ever meet them in your life. And that's really the only way I think that pain can be transformed is because you have the mm. opportunity to now have something that happened to you that you are able to provide comfort, even just in the fact that it happened to you too, right? To not even be able to say, here are the things you do when you're robbed, right. but to say like, you're not alone. I went through that and that's hard and I'm sorry. Sometimes people never get the opportunity to hear someone say, I went through that and that sucks and I'm sorry. So you now have that. It's like a little present. Yeah. I've been almost judgy of people who are like, oh yeah, I know what you mean. And I'm like, yeah. how? Well, how do you know what I mean? Well, and that's something that just really <laughs> bugs me when people are like, I know exactly how you feel. That's never, ever, ever, ever true. <laughs> yeah. And when like my dad died, people would say like, I know how you feel. No, you don't. You <laughs> didn't know my dad and you're not me. But, don't but try the, and get in on this. Right. No, but the notion that you right. can also have a sense of compassion if someone says, I know exactly how you feel. Or, 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 you know, I went through that exact same thing that you can say like, well, every situation's different, but here's what I can offer you. It builds like a new strand of empathy in your exactly. emphatic it's DNA. In your, in your, your toolkit, your right. emotional toolkit. Yeah. I felt like I understood people were raped better. Like I'm, a, well, that, although they that's might a, say, you don't know what I want. Right. For sure. Well, right. no, but you, I mean, I wouldn't say that you know what it, I, that feels like, but you've experienced a level of violation right. and a level of vulnerability and powerlessness, you know, which is the experience, unfortunately, of a lot of people in this country every day and around the world. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you're right. I hope that helped. <laughs> that is, that is, that did help. That was a good analysis of it. Ah. Uh, all right. Let me like let that sink in. Okay, for a but second. we we did pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe it'll, maybe I'll be able to help somebody with this as soon as I can stop just being yeah. angry and then depressed and then right exactly. But frustrated. yeah, you'll you'll have to work through it for sure. What are some of the things that that you've worked through? I mean, I think my dad and that whole grief process is something I've talked a lot about. Being a divorced person is something I've talked about. Um, you know, I've talked a little bit about some of the, the challenges of being a, you know, a liberal Zionist. I've talked about that a little bit. Like a lot of people think of like people who believe in the state of Israel's right to exist. A lot of times people associate that with also being conservative politically or not believing in a two-state solution or not wanting to support rights for Arabs and things like that. Mm -hmm. And the fact is there are people who believe that those things are possible in conjunction with security and safety for the state of Israel. It's not a very popular um, opinion. It's one right. that kind of confuses people a lot. So that's something I've had to deal with. Also just the notion of being a public person who expresses opinions um, and, you know, receives angry or, you know, negative feedback from that. What do you um, do when you get, does it affect you? Or of you, course. Are you numb, you're not yeah. numb to it at this point? No, or? I'm not numb to it. But that's just a personality thing. Some people are numb to it. Some people don't look at any of that stuff because it makes them too upset. Um, and I've chosen to, um, you know, kind of limit how much I do engage with that. I think a lot of people write that stuff and they think it'll never get to you. I don't know. Well, some people explicitly want it to get to me, so yeah. When I was in my 20s and I was angry <laughs> and uh, drinking a bit, I came home one night and on MySpace, I'd already had a chip on my shoulder against Jay Moore, mm -hmm. uh, but he seemed like he was in this whole other world than me. I mm. was doing little clubs in the village. We, we don't see Jay Moore. Right. He's this like celebrity. Right, right. Untouchable thing. kind of, yeah. Yeah. And I went on MySpace and there was this these TurboTax ads that were like, write your best tax joke and you could open for Jay Moore. And I just got infuriated. I'm like, huh. that's it. You know, you're, you're going to push tax jokes on us now. <laughs> and I wrote this like scathing MySpace message to Jay Moore thinking, just let me get this out of my system to this fake right. icon, uh, this right. pixelated, you know. And then morning, I I got this message back from Jay, wow. like, and, and it hit me like, oh, he's a real person, right. you know. This this really gets right. This, <laughs> this yeah, really, it gets to him. I right. thought he was on like beyond it. I think no. people think that no, you're of human celebrity. You know? Yeah, no, definitely, we're like, human. You're on this whole another plane that no. <laughs> <laughs> 
So do you reply to people also or do you? I usually don't reply to people. Um, sometimes I will, but usually there's enough that I'm posting that's in response to a majority of comments if I see that and I feel like that kind of covers it. Mm-hmm. All right. That's a, <laughs> I feel like it covers healthy, it. I think it covers it. I think that's it. a healthier response. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. How much of a personal life are you able to maintain at your level of celebrity? I'm actually not. I'm able to maintain a pretty normal life. I still go to the supermarket and get my own gas and go to the cleaners. And mm-hmm. I do all those things. I do them at times of day that aren't crowded just because that makes it easier. And, you know, I don't always want my picture taken. So, I, you know, I, right. I make those choices. But I have two kids and I want them to have a, a life that's enjoyable. And we go and we do things together. There are certain things I don't do. But, no, I, I'm not at the level of even other people on our show, certain other people on our show who really, really, you know, are very recognizable. And also, like, people don't look much at, as I call myself, an unadorned woman. You know, if you're if you're generally kind of dressed down and casual, oh. you don't attract a lot of attention. I mean, unadorned. every woman knows that, not just celebrity women. So do you think you'll stay in show business? Is, um, that, is I, that the plan? I mean, I, I don't know. Being an actor is kind of like being an athlete. You know, you've got like a sort of prime where you kind of hope that you get a lot of work and then sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. So yeah, at this point, I'm very happy doing that. I do a lot of speaking engagements. I speak for universities and Jewish federations. Um, Grok Nation takes up a lot of a lot of my time and energy. We're a very small, um, kind of three-person run organization. I should so, plug yeah. my wife Kylie's articles. She's written um, some really beautiful articles, and that's been a really gratifying part of this website is um, having people share um, special things and deep things and interesting things as um, Kylie in particular has done, um, because it puts out healthy opinions and honest opinions for an audience that might not always get to, to, to hear those things. Um, I've been really inspired by her pieces also, and some about your relationship too. So, um, it's been really nice, you know, to have people who want to share their thoughts so, so intelligently. Um, but that takes up a lot of my time for sure as our website. So why is it so important to you that you put so much time into it? Um, I guess it's kind of a passion project. It's something I'm passionate about, you know, well, I've always been passionate about the things that I believe in and presenting them in a way so as not to offend people who feel differently. Mm -hmm. And so that's been a delicate balance. Yeah. Well, and, and I think the notion is like, not everyone has to agree with each other, but is there a way that we can present information, um, in a healthy way and in a helpful way? So I think we've been able to do that. I think that that's a good lesson for the country right now. (laughs) Yes, there are a lot of lessons that I hope we can spread to the country right now. All right. Well, uh, (laughs) on that note, (laughs) the philosopher that we chose for you here is Karl Popper. Have you heard of Karl Popper? Is it Karl with a K? Karl with a K. And I don't know if I'm saying the name right, Popper. It's P-O-P-P-E-R. Sounds like Popper to me. (laughs) It's Popper Popper sounding Popper? Yes. Uh, so Alex wrote, because Mayim is a neuroscientist, that he picked a philosopher of science. Mm-hmm. So neuroscience is pretty interesting. I'm always very fascinated by the brain and just, uh-huh. um, I was thinking about this yesterday when I was, when I was driving, like what reality is. Mm-hmm. And, and then I started thinking about like how drugs can just completely alter reality and who sure. knows what reality really even is. Cause people are like, oh, you got to live in reality. Sure. What is reality? And. <laughs> How subjective is it? Well, I mean, I think there's a, a certain amount of subjectivity. I think that, you know, part of the study of the brain and nervous system is, you know, exploring um, what what we know and what we don't know. And, you know, some of the most informative uh, research and, and studies that are done is because of deficits that people have to their brains as a result of injury or stroke. And a lot that we know about consciousness comes from our our understanding of what people can consciously acknowledge and what they can't consciously acknowledge. Um, And we have locations of the brain that seem to be responsible for a notion of self and a notion of reality as it Mm -hmm. is. Um, Drug studies are extremely important and interesting. And, you know, there's been a um, a resurgence in in literature about the use in in very very controlled settings of LSD and um, of mushrooms and um, what are these controlled settings like everybody um, has to be calm no so the <laughs> controlled the controlled studies are for people usually with um, very very late stage terminal illness mm. and accompanying depression 
um, these kinds of Much drugs. Much more grim than what I was picturing. Yeah, well, these kinds of drugs can be used with, you know, one person and one therapist guide. You know, a very controlled dose of these kinds of drugs can give us a real window into the kind of connections that your brain can make with your place in the universe. And mm -hmm. what gets reported from a lot of these studies is, you know, a sense of well-being and a sense of purpose. And the fact is there are parts of the brain that are activated um, by certain drugs and by certain experiences that can make us feel that way. And every brain is different. Everyone's chemistry is different. Mm -hmm. um, you know, talk to any 10 people about how they react to having three beers and you'll, you'll get to see how different right. um, people's brains work. So, uh, you know, the notion of reality is, you know, it's kind of a constantly unfolding... Uh, unfolding aspect of, of the field of neuroscience. Was that one of the things that attracted you to it? Um, no, what attracted me to neuroscience was really the, the ability of, of, of this branch of science to be the science of our understanding of the world. And the fact that electrical impulses is what guides the release of every neurotransmitter that makes you think, feel, and process anything was really fascinating to me. Um, so that was my my interest, was really in the neuron and how it transmitted information. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go back to our philosopher. Okay. Sir Carl Raymond Popper was born July 28th, 1902, and lived till September 17th, 1994. He was an Austrian-British philosopher and professor. He's generally regarded as one of the greatest philosophers of science of the 20th century. We, you haven't heard of him. I've I heard of him. Oh, you yeah. have heard of him. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't tell you sp special things about him, but yes, when you said the name, I was thinking he was like one of the greatest philosophers right. of science. Well, of the we don't always study philosophy of science when we're studying neuroscience. <laughs> no, I wasn't pointing to you. Yeah, I was yeah. just like, maybe I should know this guy. Yeah. What do you have to do to be remembered? Let's find out. <laughs> Popper is known for his rejection of the classical um, inductive views of the scientific method in favor of empirical uh, falsification. What's empirical falsification? I don't know. You know? I don't out. know either. I'd have to Google that. You want me to do that? No. It's okay. okay. Continue. <laughs> A theory in the empirical sciences can never be proven, but it can be falsified, meaning that it can and should be scrutinized by decisive experiments. He used the black swan fallacy to discuss falsification. So far, I'm not really sure what any of this means. Okay, keep going. Uh, because there's too many things. Like, uh, if the outcome of the experiment contradicts the theory, one should refrain from ad hoc maneuvers that evade the contradiction merely by making it less falsifiable. All right, what are you getting out of this so far? Um, what I'm getting out of it is it seems like there are two ways to make a conclusion if some if there's an experiment that has conflicting views correct okay. i don't know what the black swan fallacy is but i'm hoping we'll learn more might have to do with the movie <laughs> i don't think so if, if not then i have no idea what it is should i look it up if you want I'll look can it up i look really at this quick. yeah sure Here, we should skip to the summary. Popper believes we can never prove a theory 100% correct, only exclude what was wrong. Scientific theories are abstract and huge. We cannot perfectly study the all-encompassing idea of hunger because we do not have every case at our disposal. On top of that, we have finite brains and cannot fully grasp such a big concept. However, we can see what hunger does to some mice and get as close to understanding as possible. Because our scope is limited, no number of positive outcomes can totally prove a theory. However, an experiment that proves a theory wrong is decisive. It's kind of like a null hypothesis thing. I don't know why it's, I don't know, I don't know why it took us till now to figure it out. Mm -hmm. A theory is only scientific if we have a clear idea of how to prove it wrong. So, for example, I only see white swans, therefore all swans are white. Only needs one black swan to be false. Mm -hmm. So that's, I'm okay, assuming, that, what that, the black that, swan that fallacy is. Black. For Popper, the point of science is not to find out you're right, but to always look for how you might be wrong. The best theories are those that lead to more interesting questions. It's kind of a negative way of looking at things. Yeah, well. What? <laughs> nothing. Um... <laughs> no, what, what was funny about it? I mean. uh, nothing. I just, I, you know, I, I, I typically, you know, would would have days to um, do more research and write this up before I decide how much I like Karl Popper. <laughs> right, right. Well, you don't have to like him or not like sure. him. It's not like a, a thumbs up or thumbs down at the well, end. Well, I give him a thumbs up. That'd be funny at the end. <laughs> Karl Popper, we hate him. <laughs> um. Then what do you think of the this black black swan fallacy? Yeah, I mean this is this is a that's sort of a you know a logic problem that you hear also talked about in political theory you mm -hmm. know circles as well. I I'm surprised that it's his, but um, 
you know, I think one of the most dangerous things about science is false conclusions. And we see it a lot. I've been seeing it in the news actually very recently, um, you know, about sort of the conclusions we draw from either small studies or misinterpretations of studies. So I guess this is kind of what what Popper was was working on on a different scale, that um, if you only see white swans, the the assumption that all swans are right might be true given the mm. evidence in front of you, but it's actually not true with a capital T. Right. And but, all it takes is one black swan to prove that. But you, what if you live in a place where there are no black swans, but there still exist black so swans somewhere else? Th- this is a great, you know, callback to the notion of reality. You know, if, if what's in front of you is only white swans, you could, um, you know, you could stake your entire life's claim on the fact that there are only white swans in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but... It, what what scientific philosophers have to do is try and find those larger arcs um, mm-hmm. for what's true always and everywhere. I always wonder what black swans I'm missing in my life. <laughs> you mean outside of swans? I mean, like I'm only exposed to this world, to sure. this reality. Like, right? You know, if I went to live in in Senegal or something. Sure. Well, well this well, is. One of my great arguments for what you should do with your money, which is travel. Um, <laughs> and when people ask, you know what I'd like to do with my kids, um, travel, take them different places, show them different realities. Um, especially if you live in a city like LA, you know, the bubble is so, it's so specific, you know, and we really can believe that this is sort of the reality. And, and I think also, you know, once you leave the bubble of Los Angeles, you know, it's astounding to see that there are, um, people of all different sizes and shapes who Mm. are loved and appreciated. I was watching, uh, Amy Schumer. I had never seen her, I guess, live at the Apollo and she has a whole bit, you know, about that it's impossible to date in Los Angeles, uh-huh. you know, yeah. um, because of how she looks, you know, because she's a, you know, size six or eight or whatever. I think that's very interesting. But we we do. We form our own reality based on what we have immediate access to. I mean, there's the, the standards of beauty, you know, in Hollywood um, in some ways have gotten, you know, more flexible. You know, when I was a kid, only white people were allowed on television is mm-hmm. what it felt like. Yeah. Um, and the, the kind of Playboy bunny notion of beauty was all we saw. And now it's really refreshing that um, there are um, people of different sizes, shapes, colors um, presented. But um, I think for most of the country, that's still kind of shocking. You know, there was that ad, I don't remember what company it was for, where they had a um, an interracial couple. And, you know, some people lost their minds. Like, I won't shop there because you show black and white. Why are you shoving black and white people down my throat? <laughs> that's so disturbing to me. Yeah. Because I live weird. in L.A. It's like, you right, know. Right. Anyway. So within this bubble, that's crazy, right? But, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, I grew up, I, I grew up with, I was one of the only white kids in my elementary school, you know? Yeah. Um, I grew up with kids, children of immigrants, you know, I, I grew up with a lot of, um, a lot of Korean kids and kids from Mexico and Central America. And we were a, a myriad bunch. Are you going to go back to teaching after acting again? Um, probably not. I mean, I, my, my distractibility level is very high, uh, yeah. at this point. I teach my kids. I started teaching them neuroscience and well, I've taught them both to play the piano and I taught them both to read and write Hebrew. So there are things that I do. I guess. Cool. I always find it funny <laughs> when people are like, Programming their kids, you basically. Um, well, like, I don't know about programming. It, it almost feels like it's like, well, I just installed piano in my kid. Oh, you know? I don't know. Like, I like mean, a computer, like it's yeah, like. Yeah, no, know? I get it, but uh, but yeah, I mean. Like what certain things you want to put in a in a kid? Yeah, well, you know, you want to put compassion and love in them as well. Right. So we do that too. I think but, like yeah. my parents tried to install a violin app into me right. when I was a kid. And yeah, did, well, I rejected it. We, uh, our kids are homeschooled, and you know, one of the amazing things about having children um, homeschooled is that you really do get to kind of customize certain aspects of their education, and that's why a lot of people do believe in homeschooling. Um, if something's not working for them, we can change it. And um, if they don't like something, sometimes it's just because it's hard and they're bored, but mm-hmm. sometimes it's because it's a wrong fit, and it's great to be able to change that, you know, midstream. But piano seems to be working for them both, so that's good. You don't do the mainstream approach. You're vegan. Right. So you're not eating the mainstream right. food. <laughs> uh, you're into science and you're into religion. Right. You're, into, you're homeschooling your kids. Right. Uh, you, you're, you're an actor and, I mean, you, right. I wonder if that's an, in some level an intentional choice to... To um, sort of go against the grain. I think, yeah. I mean, I think I've always been different. I think even if I wasn't a public person, I'd be different. Um, you know, people are people are the way they are. 
mm-hmm. you know, for a lot of genetic reasons and a lot of environmental ones. So what it's about a personality like upbringing? Thing. Do you think certain things about your of upbringing? Of course. Kind of- yeah. My mom was a real rebel. You know, she was an artist and, um, my dad was very considered very rebellious, you know, How for so? not for not becoming an accountant like his dad or, mm-hmm. you know, um, both my parents were kind of anomalous, you know, in their families. Mm-hmm. So so you kind of saw that and were like, yeah. Uh, well, no, I think just a lot of it is just, you know, then what's passed on and, you yeah. know, how you're raised. I think the fact that my dad never had a day job, he was, <laughs> uh, he was uh, always a freelance artist, uh-huh. he was a photographer. Uh-huh kind of instilled in me that like going to a day job is an evil thing or something. But you know, you hear <laughs> it all freelance you, artist. Yeah, you hear it all different ways, you know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you'll hear bohemian parents who produce, you know, doctors and lawyers. So it depends on so many things. Because that's like a rebellion against <laughs> right, the exactly. parent. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> right. Watch You're me bohemian. get a short haircut. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we went through the summary. Um, now there's a paragraph here, and I always ask the guest to read the paragraph, but you did read the summary. I read the summary, so but I can read the paragraph. if you want to read the paragraph, sure. we'll read and discuss the paragraph. Okay. When I speak of reason, I mean the conviction that we can learn through criticism of our errors, especially through criticism by others and eventually through self-criticism. A rationalist is someone for whom it's more important to learn than to be proved right, someone who's willing to learn from others, not by simply talking over another's opinions, but by gladly allowing others to criticize his ideas and by gladly criticizing the ideas of others. The emphasis here is on the idea of critical discussion. The genuine rationalist does not think he is in possession of the truth, nor does he think that mere criticism helps us achieve new ideas. And it's like me. I don't think I know anything. I'm, I'm rational. And right. Therefore well, there I feel you like, go. Okay. Uh, but he does think that only critical discussion can help sort the wheat from the chaff. He's well aware that acceptance of an idea is never a purely rational matter, but he thinks that only critical discussion can give us the maturity to see an idea from more sides and to make a correct judgment. Okay. Sounds like me. Well, I don't, I don't normally, I don't normally think of rationalism like that. Um, Why? uh, I mean, I think of rationalism as other things, but um, this sort of seems more a notion of a person you'd like to talk to about anything important. You know, someone who doesn't always think they're right or is willing to learn from others. Um, Someone who isn't intimidated by criticism. And this is actually um, something Eric Kaplan and I talk a lot about. And it's something that he has assured me gets easier with age, you know, as you get older, um, that you feel less out of sorts when others don't agree with you or Mm -hmm. you you feel less, hopefully, out of sorts when others challenge something about you. And um, I've noticed that to some extent when I was younger, uh, you know, I'm 40. And when I was when I was in my 20s and even in my 30s, you know, I was much more um, much more um, easily offended and. much less rational um, about that. Uh, but I've, I've done a lot of work in the last, you know, 10 years or so to try and cultivate, um, I guess, more rationality. What were what were people attacking you for, like being vegan or something? Oh, like, what do you- um, well, just like when you're a parent, everybody attacks mm-hmm. you for everything. Like I had a home birth and like people didn't like that and I breastfed my kids and people didn't like that and I breastfed them longer than people were comfortable and people didn't like that. Like people just pick on you for everything when you're so, a parent. But it's none of their business. Um, well, I mean, yeah, but that's not really like that's not really a, something that you say to people. Yeah. Um, because why not? Well, because a lot of times, if you want to interact with other human beings, you, you know, <laughs> you need to have conversations with them. Um, but yeah, I mean, you you end up having to, um, you know, either defend or justify your decisions to family members who may not agree. Mm-hmm. You know, there were people in my family who weren't comfortable with me breastfeeding an infant around mm-hmm. them. Um, so if you want to interact with people and not just keep writing people off, which um, I mentor, um, I mentor about four different women um, and we, we talk about things like this. Like it's really? very, yeah. Mentoring? I mentor about four different women. Yeah. I guess there's four of them. Yeah. For how long is, um, have you done that? Oh gosh, about seven years or so. Wow. Yeah. So one You're of the so things, busy. Yeah. I'm very busy. As I sit here and um, talk to you, I'm like, wow. <laughs> no, but, but one everything. of the things we talk about is that when people make you upset or when people piss you off, you know, it's very easy to say like that person pissed me off and I never want to speak to them again. Um, but if you keep accumulating people that you never speak to, you know, you kind of realize that you're the common denominator mm-hmm. in all those relationships. So so what does it mean when you say you mentor someone? Do you sit down with them like um, yeah, across from a desk like we are now? And Sometimes. And sometimes it's talking by phone and uh-huh. sometimes it's, um, you know, I try not to give advice, but I give suggestions based on my personal experience. And um, I learn a lot, you know, from the from the women I mentor too. You know, mm-hmm. that's the wonderful thing about mentoring someone. Yeah. 
And sometimes it's stuff you already know, but once you say it out loud, absolutely. It's, it's well, like, and it challenges you. You know, I'm talking like I'm a mentor. No, I'm not but a it's mentor. no, but it challenges you when you see things in other people also that bother you. That's mm-hmm. a great indication. Like, oh, do I do that? Have I ever done that? What's right. that about me? So that's you know, and when we were you know kind of to loop back, uh, you know, that's sort of the notion for me of a religious life is like finding every opportunity to um, to find things about myself that need repairing. Like that's sort of how I approach life and no secular philosophy has encouraged me to do that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And just part of it's just about routine and, you know, I mean, Eric, you know, Eric wrote a beautiful book about his sort of journey. Eric Kaplan, who was on this show. Yeah. You got to go back and listen to it. Yeah. And he's our, he's a co-executive producer on the Big Bang Theory and has Mm -hmm. written some of your favorite television shows if you've ever watched television. Um but yeah, Eric and I, we've we've studied together and learned together at work. Um, we used to study regularly, weekly, but we haven't um, the past couple of years. But we still take the opportunity to kind of learn together that way. And that's something we what talk about learn? too. Um, we studied Jewish philosophy um, for a year. We studied um, Arya Kaplan, a very, very famous rabbi know, yeah. and physicist. We studied about um, meditation and Kabbalah. And- yep. We studied Sefer Yetzira, actually, which took a whole year, um, which is a book about mysticism, and but it's a lot about physics as well. That's a, so, that's a yeah. fact. I want to study that, but it's an it's what, a hard what hard. It's, did you walk away from? It that was awesome. Just, I mean that that's a text that you know. Was there something you took away from it that was like mind altering? That oh gosh, uh, I mean there's so many things. Um, Come on, give us the juice. What do you got? No, I mean like <laughs> that book is it's an incredibly intricate and complicated book. Um, you know, which has been traced back to being written by Abraham himself, and yeah, um, the. The, the meditations that that he discusses uh, or that he analyzes in that were in this original text are mind-blowing. I mean, there were meditations that literally took days um, for these great mystics to do. And there were physical poses and directions that you would face and mm-hmm. ways that you would bow and, like, just things that you never would think about with, you know, Judeo-Christianity, that there were chants and mantras and, you know, hours upon hours, and in some cases, days upon days of meditation. It makes us wonder, like, what kind of Judaism we're practicing now. <laughs> right, and, and how come we're not meditating enough? Yep. I think, like, meditation is probably, like, it's it's almost something that, like, a, a vitamin that, we, that we're craving. Oh, I, that. I, I think, yeah, I've, I've started trying to maintain a more regular practice of meditation. I use guided meditations mainly. Um, but, yeah, I think really? it's... Really? What, like what? Yeah, um, I... I guess it's okay to talk about. I mean, I'm not paid to talk about it, but I have an app called Insight Timer. I mean, there's a million free apps, and this is a free app, and it has guided meditations, and they're listed by time and title, and you can read about them, and you click on it, and there it is, and it just, like, free meditations. So I use those a lot, and there's different ones. There's ones with music, and there's ones without, and there's ones that are more relaxation. There are ones that are more lecture-based, but I think that... um, you know, for me, meditation has been one of the most Im- important things for, for mood regulation and um, for just helping so many things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it kind of, it just clears your mind. That's what prayer is as well. Yeah, well, prayer is supposed to be, but it's we've lost a lot of that art, you know, of prayer. How know? important is prayer to you? Uh, prayer is very important, um, but I find the prayer service very comforting, and I just, you know, completed 11 months of Kaddish for my dad. Um, so that was a really different window, you know, into the, the prayer, the prayer service. So for people that don't know what Kaddish is. Yeah. The Kaddish is a prayer that is, um, recited, um, several times throughout every, every Jewish, um, service, which is typically recited three times a day. Um, but there's a mourner's Kaddish, a, a, a prayer that distinguishes pretty much the end of a, of a service. Mm-hmm. And so it's recited by mourners and mourners in Judaism are either a, a child, a parent, a spouse, um, or a sibling. And when you say Kaddish, you're saying it for the person's soul. Correct. The next, yeah. The, so that must have had you thinking about the next world. Block. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, 11 months of reciting this prayer at least once a day, um, sometimes twice or three times if I was lucky. Um, yeah. 11 months gives you a lot of time to think about what that means. And um, yeah, the notion is that you can elevate uh, the the soul and existence of someone who has passed on by honoring them this way. So you want to? Uh, you think you're ready to go into these quotes? Here? Yes, let's go into the quotes. <laughs> Quote number one. Okay. Whenever a theory appears to be the only possible one, take this as a sign that you have neither understood the theory nor the problem. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, I like that. And. 
seems like this was um, one of Popper's general uh, themes, right? I like his name too, Popper. Sure. Hey, you, Just, yeah, he sounds like, like a yeah, a, like, like a, a neighborhood guy, like a neuroscience <laughs> rapper. Um, no, but this obviously this is along the same the same lines as Black Swan Fallacy, right? Right. And it also makes me think about what you were saying that you talked to Eric Kaplan about about how you feel less judged as you go along in life. Sure. Um, that's sort of like at the crux of it. If if somebody thinks there's only one theory, if somebody's judging you, they're kind of on the one theory. Right. Plane, well, this right? feels like a very. I mean, this feels like a very kind of Jewish notion. Also, you know, this notion that as soon as you think you're right, you're wrong, um, mm-hmm. which is I think in Pure Chaos. Um, I think that's well, but but also he takes it one level further. It's not just. It's not just that if you think that there's only one possible theory that um, you haven't understood the theory, it means you haven't even understood the problem, that there are mm-hmm. more levels to what you're trying to explain than you can even grasp. Right. I like that a lot. Okay. Uh, All right, let's... Uh, quote number quote. two. Well, it has a like a caveat on how we use our imagination to extrapolate. Eh. What's the oh, title? no, I think that was made from that. Okay. okay. Quote number two. Science is the art of oversimplification. Well, that's interesting. How so? I don't know. Only science philosophers can say things like that because most people think science is so complicated. Um, But I guess, you know, I'm assuming what he's getting at is that the notion that we can explain things with a finite number of words or theories is an oversimplification um, since everything is more complicated, you know, than we can even imagine. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quote three. Am I doing this right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Quote three, the game of science is without end. He who decides that scientific statements do not call for any further test retires from the game. Yeah, it's similar to the first one. That yeah, you, saying, you don't you know. Can't be, pretty much you don't know. <laughs> if we had to sum up Karl Popper, it would be like, you don't really know. <laughs> what do you think you know? Uh, yeah, you don't know anything. Uh, Quote four. It was my master who taught me not only how very little I knew, but also that any wisdom I could have would come from realizing the infinity of my ignorance. (laughs) Well, he's just... (laughs) There you have it. Same thing. Yeah. I mean, it's really... But I think it's really... uh, It's intriguing um, to have someone who's such a master of his field Mm -hmm. be so humble. I mean, that's kind of... I think that's what a lot of... This sounds like he emphasized for I feel humility. Like that's also how he got famous, just by being really humble. <laughs> Since he doesn't know anything. <laughs> yeah, but people would say, hey, you know what? He's not wrong. Right. He can't be it's, wrong. No, because but, the only way. <laughs> no, but it's very, it's very <laughs> profound. You, you know? can't lose if you say, I don't know. I don't know. People say, you know what? He doesn't know. He's right. Right. Well, and, here's, and he's so humble. That leads into his bonus quote. Or the bonus quote. The bonus quote. I think so badly of philosophy that I don't like to talk about it. I do not want to say anything bad about my dear colleagues, but the profession of philosophy is a ridiculous one. We don't need a thousand of trained and badly trained philosophers. It's very silly. Actually, most of them have nothing to say. (laughs) Well, I'm sure that didn't make him very popular. No, but it seems he was popular enough. Well, I will have to look up more about Karl Popper. Oh, cool. You got interested. Well, I mean... I, I, like I said, I've known about him at some point, but yeah. I didn't take any uh, neuroscience philosophy classes. <laughs> I don't know that they were held. They were busy teaching us how to dissect brains. <laughs> yeah. How was that? Messy. <laughs> well, stinky more than messy because it's formaldehyde. They're you, soaked in formaldehyde. You don't ever get creeped out by these things? It's kind of creepy, but, um, you know, it's the in, in some cases the best way to learn. And these were all brains that were donated, you know. So I've done two human brains. I wonder whose yeah. brains they were. Um, well, one had a very large um, injury, like a big, um, big kind of water bubble right in the middle. So, Whoa. yeah, it was kind of surprising. What What is the reaction the first time you see a human brain? Up close? Um, I mean, it's it, it's not gross. Like it's not mm-hmm. bloody. It's just like it looks kind of like a you know kind of gray grayish pink mm-hmm. brain, but it looks kind of fake, you know, you'd, you'd be amazed at how kind of fake it looks. But once you cut it open, like everything's kind of the same color. I mean, there are very subtle, you know, differences between gray mm-hmm. matter and white matter and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, it's much, it's much simpler than you'd think, but the smell is kind of memorable. How many people get a brain? Do you have to share it with yeah, a bunch of people? Yeah, we have to share it. Yeah. There's not infinite number of brains. I don't know. We probably had like 25 people in our class and, you know, about th- three people per brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you'd wrap it up for next week. <laughs> 
It's like zombie takeout. Yeah. Well, <laughs> just yeah, just put wrap it, it up. in some brown paper. Yeah, put it in the fridge. <laughs> Thanks so much for doing the show. Thank you. This was, was awesome. Thank you to you guys, the listeners, for tuning in. Please make a donation if you can by going to moderndayphilosophers.net. You'll find there a donate button. And you can donate uh, by PayPal, and it's a great way to show support for the show. There's also a free way to show support for the show, which is very helpful to us. And that is go on iTunes and leave a five-star comment in the ratings and reviews section. That really boosts the show's visibility and helps other people find out about the show. I want to thank, of course, the team behind the scenes, Alex Vasella, who picks out the philosophers, and Logan Heftel, who masters the audio and did such an incredible job blending the audio together from the two uh, times that I recorded with Mayim that I feel like it's almost seamless when you listen to it. You don't hear sp- different levels or spikes in the audio. It's almost like it was all one interview. What a genius you are, Logan Heftel. Incredible guy. And an incredible musician. Check him out. Check out his SoundCloud page. All right, here's the inspirational message. Uh, as soon as I got my head together after being robbed at the barbershop and thinking about how powerless I felt, I decided maybe I got to do something about that. So I called up my friend, Liam O'Neill, who we did a web series together in 2007. He's an incredible director and, and writer, and he's also uh, a big boxer. He loves to box. And I told him I want to learn how to box. I got to defend myself. And uh, we started boxing. And, and I thought, oh, I hope I keep this up, you know. Well, two months later, I've been doing it two times a week with him. And then Fridays, I've just been working out. And I dropped 30 pounds. I'm, I'm incredibly excited. And uh, maybe I'll even live a long time now. I'd like to. It might be fun. Uh, so I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep fighting, fighting the weight and fighting to uh, be able to defend myself if Something like this ever happens again. You know, I may have been powerless the first time, but I learned a valuable lesson. And it only cost me $440 cash. The most I've ever been carrying on me. And uh, I can't even remember when. And the one time I was, boy, they got me. Right at my own barber shop. It's a whole nother story. All right. Well, everybody, have a great day. Please tell everyone you know, at least tell some of the people you know about Modern Day Philosophers and spread the word about the show. I really appreciate it. And don't be shy. I'd love to hear from you. You can always write me at thecomical at yahoo.com. Let me know what's going on, even if you've written before. Stay in touch. All right, everybody. Talk to you later. Goodbye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.